Good morning, new community. How are we? I uh, tell you what, a little sunshine makes a huge difference. And you can tell that during our greeting time this morning, people were actually greeting one another and saying hello, which was really nice to see. Uh, I'm going to actually invite you, if you are able and willing, to stand. And we're going to read the scripture this morning. We're going to start this way. The scripture passage uh, that I'm pulling from is a, uh, it's a, a pretty long section. It's uh, Mark 14, 43 through 72. I'm going to read kind of a first half and a second half, uh, and I'll give you a little bit of context what's happening in the moments uh, that I will not read. But this is where we start. It says this, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Jesus said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. We'll pick up the story in a moment here, but what happens after this, Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin. They're sifting through all of this false testimony, and they're searching for evidence to condemn Jesus to death. And it's at this point that Jesus states that he is the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, as he says, this being all the evidence that they need. We pick our scripture back up here, and it says, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and he went out to the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses and swore to them, I do not know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the roaster crowed a second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoke to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Amen. You may be seated. So there is clearly a lot going on in this section of Scripture, and in many ways, this is kind of a turning point. Prior to our readings this morning, Jesus is a free man. He's living into his call to ministry, but now he's captured, and the narrative shifts to detailing the beginning of the end of Jesus's earthly life. And really throughout these verses, about 30 verses that we uh, are studying this morning, we see a theme that's reiterated through the actions of different people. Judas betrays him. The crowds desert him. The young naked man, presumably Mark, the author of the gospel we're studying from, flees from him. And Peter disowns him. 
in the final days, everyone leaves. Now, what we see in these people and these individuals, I don't think is a unique or surprising human response. When confronted with difficulty, there is a natural protective response to seek the path of least resistance. I don't think it's a stretch to assume that each of us has quit at some point in our lives. All of these individuals quit on Jesus. Now, I can actually remember a time pretty vividly when I quit in middle school. Because it is March Madness, I thought a story about basketball might be helpful. So, ninth grade basketball. I had never played a single minute of organized basketball in my entire life, but in my junior high, basketball was the cool sport, so I had to give it a go. Planning to try out, I approached my mom about basketball shoes, but she said that she was unwilling to buy new basketball shoes until I proved that I would stick with the season. At the time, I thought this to be a bit of a short-sighted parenting decision, but now as a parent can appreciate my mom's wisdom and stewardship. Not to be deterred, though, I showed up to practice in these. How many, how many remember these shoes from uh, kind of the like mid-90s era, right? These are high-tech hiking boots. These were my dailies, a very sensible boot, okay? Good for both on and off-road adventures. This is what I wore. So I show up to practice in these high-tech uh, hiking boots. And although I thought I actually performed pretty well, the blisters that I developed after that first practice were legendary. Didn't matter to me. I was going to play basketball. And so I showed up the next day, but now with a second set of socks on. Because if you go two sets of socks, it's going to be better for you in ways uh, that blisters cannot form. And so I pull up, and I kind of hobble through this second practice, and I can remember coming to the end of that second practice, really feeling like, ah, maybe I'm not all that great at basketball, having never played before. I can remember Mr. Ticker pulling me aside. Mr. Ticker was our PE teacher, also our basketball coach. Pulled me aside at the end of practice, and he said that even though I was a ninth grader, that I would likely be pay, playing on the seventh grade team for the beginning of the season so that I could develop a little bit more in my skills. That statement, an absolute crushing blow to the psyche of a 15-year-old kid. And I can remember vividly sitting against the wall in the gym waiting to be picked up and thinking that I would rather die than experience the social outcasting of being the only ninth grade student on the seventh grade team. But even more than that, I think what I was really afraid of was being found out. Found out that I wasn't good at something. Found out that maybe I wasn't successful. And so, I quit. Probably using the boots, right, <laughs> as my excuse maybe even using my mom as an excuse why I couldn't play basketball anymore. And so I quit in that moment. 
Now, obviously, the stakes are a little higher for those around Jesus than they were around the Mead Junior High School gymnasium. But my experience of quitting in that moment really comes from fundamentally the same place as the characters that we read about. I encountered difficulty. I was afraid I would not be able to overcome, and so I ran away. The difficulty in following Jesus has been building throughout the book of Mark, and in our scripture this morning, kind of reaches this apex. And the scripture doesn't give a clear indication why everyone scatters, but we can assume for some that his radical political and religious views had reached a tipping point for them. For others, their own greed and selfishness. And still others, they feared for their own safety. Their safety if they were recognized as a sympathizer or a friend to this person who had just been arrested. And so in our scripture, we are left with this agonizing picture of Jesus. Everyone quits on him and he's left completely alone. You got to wonder in that moment, what did it feel like to be abandoned in that way? Now, abandonment is an emotionally charged word. For those in this space who have experienced its pain, you can probably testify to the depth of lasting hurt that it can create. It's a wound that does not easily heal. It's not rectified with simple sorries and easy I'll do betters. And I think that's because it chips away at a very core human desire for belonging. We are communal just by our very nature. We are built to be with others. We are created to be in relationship. So when someone chooses to quit on us, to abandon us, a very fundamental aspect of our being is compromised. Our trust and our sense of our very selves is violated. I've read these final few chapters of Jesus' life many times over the last 20 years, and each time as I think about his friends leaving him there, I try to figure out who would I most likely be in the story. If I was palling around with Jesus, following him, who would I be in the story? So I try to place my story, myself in the story, and of course the first thing I conclude is there is no earthly way I would have abandoned Jesus. I would have been the one, right? I would have been with him through thick and thin. My loyalty, my commitment are far too strong. Then I realize how arrogant that sounds, how self-assured I am, and I have to humbly admit, ah, I too may have quit in that moment. And so I wonder, would I have been a Judas? a fake that sells out his friend early in the process, someone that's either so greedy, so self-centered that my devotion and loyalty can just easily be bought. Maybe I'm like one in the crowd, right? Never really bought in enough to this whole thing to have a specific credit in the story. I'm a follower of convenience, there when it's exciting and beneficial, but always able to leave when it becomes uncomfortable. Maybe I'm like crazy naked Mark, so scared of what might happen if I'm caught, 
I'd be guilty by association, and so I'd rather endure my own embarrassment than stand up for my convictions. Or maybe I'm like Peter, vulnerable and afraid, broken and confused, disoriented and consumed by my own thoughts, my own feelings, that even in talking to a child, I'm willing to disown the very person I swore to give my life to. Now, I'm sure each of us could identify with one of these people or one of these scenarios, but rather than spending our time wrestling with who we would be in this story, I think it might be a better practice for us to take a moment and just be reminded that even the God of the universe was abandoned. That Jesus knows what this was like. That Jesus has suffered its sting, has experienced its hurt. Because if and when we believe this, I think it gives us a different picture of who Jesus could be to us. I mean, what could it mean for us to sit in the truth that Jesus has experienced everything that we have experienced? It's not just that Jesus is tempted like us or Jesus has shed tears like us, but he has actually felt the crushing pain of abandonment like many of us have. See, God didn't send Jesus to earth as an actor. Jesus is God choosing to limit himself in every way, stepping in to the fullness and brokenness of human skin so as to share and experience the very same stage that we're on. And if we can hold on to that truth, what type of comfort and hope and peace might this give us in those times of our suffering? Doug Frank says this, of the four Gospels, Marx seems to be the one least tempted to portray Jesus in superhuman light. The early Christian church, like any human institution in its situation, must have felt irresistible pressure to make a hero of its dead Savior. If Jesus' self-understanding was grounded, as I'm arguing, and a humanity shared with every other human being, his followers would have had uh, would have had to struggle mightily to resist infanticizing. Infanticizing? That's not even a real word, but he puts it in quotes. <clears throat> Him and to reflect his self-understanding accurately when they told stories about him. But I think Mark has the opposite strategy in mind. Instead of using a big God to burnish a little Jesus' credentials, he's using a little Jesus to bring a big God down to size. He's getting ready for a surprise. God is someone small and human like Jesus. Now, I wonder if we ever give ourselves to see God in this way, someone small and someone human. Because critical to our theology, we have to remember that Jesus was not a divine being that dipped in and out of humanity. He was fully human, he had relationships like we have relationships. He had a faith likely more similar to ours than maybe we've ever thought before. In the garden, 
Earlier in Mark 14, Jesus calls out to God using the phrase Abba. Daddy is essentially what it means. It's a term of endearment, indicating a closeness and an intimacy of a father-son relationship. But then on the cross, in his final breaths, he utters, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God. And then he asks this question, why have you forsaken me? And there is a formality now in how he's addressing God. No longer is he using this close, intimate phrase, Abba, but Eloi, my God. The relationship feels different between those two ways of addressing. And this gospel moment on the cross brought into greater focus when you understand how everyone had already left him is perhaps the most intense moment of the entire story. In his suffering, Jesus' faith was shaken. The shift from the familiar Abba in the garden to the more formal Eloi on the cross is truly telling to the depth of emotional pain that Jesus experienced. Father Raymond Brown says this, his screamed protests against abandonment wretched from an utterly forlorn Jesus is now uh, who now is so isolated and estranged that he no longer uses father language but speaks as a humble servant. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, as students of the Bible, we should know that this is the first line of Psalm 22. This Davidic psalm opens with the expressed feelings of an absent God, but resolves by the end in acknowledging God's ultimate deliverance. The psalm paints a picture of a God that does, in fact, hear and respond to our cries. And some have suggested Jesus is using a literary technique of speaking the first line of the psalm right there while he's on the cross to call to memory God's ultimate movement of showing up, God's assured deliverance. And while that very possibly might be the situation, let me ask this. Does it change the story if Jesus is uttering the first line because he really did feel abandoned by God? What does it mean for us if we understood Jesus in this moment, fully human, crying out, asking where God was? And what would it mean for us then in our moments when we cry out, asking where God is? Jesus was abandoned by his earthly friends and family, and I believe in his humanity, he felt abandoned by his divine Father. Now, there is a difference between believing God to be absent and feeling the absence of God, and the latter is common for people of faith, and I believe it's a feeling that Jesus understands well. And if Jesus felt this way, then we need not feel guilty or sick or self-hatred in those moments when we feel that way, when we cry out, where are you, God? There's a story of Jürgen Moltmann, one of the most important theologians of the 20th century. He's raised as a secularist in Germany during World War II. At the age of 20, while serving as a soldier in the German army, Moltmann was captured and placed 
in an English prisoner of war camp. Reading the New Testament as a prisoner, he encountered Jesus' cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And thought, here is someone who understands me. It was that realization that was the beginning of his journey to Christian faith. In his humanity, we are given a God that understands us so that we can make sense of him. Now, I get that this might rattle your understanding of who God is. I mean, how could Jesus feel this way about God with which he is in perfect relationship with? How can we reconcile this with our Trinitarian understanding? These are big questions. I can't answer them for you. I'm not sure we will ever know the answer to these things on this side of it. But I found this that seemed to provide maybe a bit of understanding. Greg Boyd speaks about it in this way. He, he says, perhaps the best way of thinking about this is to distinguish between the love and unity that the three divine persons experience on the one hand and the love and unity that defines God's eternal essence on the other. We could say that on the cross, the former was momentarily sacrificed as an expression of the latter. That is, the three divine persons sacrificed their previously uninterrupted experience of perfect love and union in order to express the perfect love and union that defines them as God. God is, by very nature, a God of self-sacrifice and radical love. And the cross is this ultimate picture of his willingness to sacrifice both physically and emotionally. And so that God have gave up the felt experience of perfect unity to express the depth of love and grace and mercy had for all humanity. And in this way, Jesus knows perhaps better than anyone the feeling of loneliness, the disorientation of questioning, and the hurt of feeling abandoned. And that can have a radically profound effect in our lives. It means that we never, never have to worry about doing it alone. It means no, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how deep the hurt, Jesus has not only experienced it, but he is there with you in it. Brian Zahn says, God is a suffering God. He's not impassable. He is not aloof. He is not distant and separate, but he is truly Emmanuel, God with us, and especially a God who is with us in our suffering. When we suffer, God is not just there to speak words of encouragement or put an arm around our shoulder. No, when we suffer, God suffers with us. He is in the midst of the pain, crying out, right along with us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe it's this loving and ongoing presence that allows Paul to speak with such seeming confidence when he says, we are hard-pressed on, on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Jesus did it all, suffered it all, experienced it all so that we would not have to go it alone. 
And because in his humanity he felt abandoned, he, in his divinity, will never abandon us. And that, my friends, is the good news. That is the good news. On a morning like this, I'm always sensitive. I think we all try to be sensitive, not just to provide hollow answers to people's pain. That's not at all what I would hope from this. That's not at all what our church would ever hope we would communicate on a Sunday. Because we know there is brokenness and pain in this life and that choosing to follow Jesus doesn't give us an immunity to those things. Many, if not all, have experienced great suffering. And if you have not, you likely will at some point. The Christian faith doesn't keep us from human pain, either physical or emotional. But it does assure us that we never have to face it alone. It assures us that we don't need to white-knuckle our way through life's obstacles and hurts, but rather we can release our grip, knowing Jesus is present with us in every way imaginable. Doug Frank continues, I, I read a quote from him earlier a few pages later on in the same chapter. He says this, God acts, but in only way pure love can act. God is continually present in the world, a living spirit that invades reality at every moment and at every place, that speaks as love does, in whispers unceasingly into each and every human heart. This godly love, the love that can change everything, comes not from a place of duty, but from empathy, a place of deep understanding. Jesus is not bound to love us by way of some divine mandate. Jesus' love is born out of his experience, out of knowing what it's like to suffer and feel abandoned. And because he's experienced this, because this is the love he extends, we can trust that he will never quit on us. So let me close with this final thing. I understand this morning could land in one of two ways. Speaking about abandonment and suffering can feel incredibly heavy, especially if you're in a moment right now where you are suffering, where you're experiencing these things. It can bring to surface past hurts and pain, and that can feel heavy. And if that's where you're at, that's okay. Be present in it. We're not asking you to change how you feel in this moment. It is okay just to be present in that. We've created some time here at the end of our service. The band is going to come back up. They're going to play through a few songs. If you just need space, if you need somebody to talk to, if you need prayer, we'll have a few folks up here. Feel free to come to the front. Share your experience. Cry in somebody's arms. Receive prayer if that's where you're at, and that is okay. For others, this morning might feel really helpful, might fill you with hope. Some might feel encouraged by the reality and the truth of the God who we follow. Again, it's okay to be present in that feeling. It's okay to feel hope, understanding this about who Jesus is. And so we invite you to worship alongside our band in the assurance 
and the hope of Jesus' understanding, his depth of love, and his consistent presence. So regardless of where you were at this morning, I invite you to enter this next time with gratitude and for space to be present with each other and with our God. Amen.